trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You know, it's funny. um, Got an email from a listener here uh, not so long ago saying, hey, what happened? You know, there was a station that was carrying your show once and then they replaced you with a couple of conservative boneheads. And I had to laugh because uh, I was a conservative bonehead for a long time. And by the way, if you are a conservative bonehead, I'm not saying that like you're a bad person. I'm just saying there came a point where where I realized uh, talking about the politicians and talking about, you know, this political intrigue and that political intrigue, it only goes so far. It it will definitely get people's interest and there's, you know, intrigue and there's drama and and that's it's it's almost like it's a passion play that Washington DC or perhaps even in your own state house, you know, that's that's being put on. But the place where the rubber meets the road, the place where we really get the opportunity to have influence usually doesn't involve as much political stuff. It comes down to a much more individual thing. So I'm telling you this just because I want to I want to share some stuff with you today. I'm going to talk a little bit about morality today. And and for some people, that's like, oh, I'd rather hear politics than morality. But if you're the kind of person who's serious about shifting things in a in a positive direction or uh, reclaiming you know some of the principles and and practices that make life worthwhile and that that bring purpose that bring peace of mind then you got to consider the individual level before the political level because political follows the individual i hope that makes sense it's not going to be a top down solution of hey suddenly everybody got their crap together and you know we we all started being good people because we put the right person in office nope you get somebody in office who is really good, outstanding, and who, who leads not only as a, as a good, solid character, but also keeps government within its proper limits, it's going to be because enough people are moral enough to know the difference, and they will settle for nothing less. I hope that makes sense. Because in my mind, that, that makes perfect sense. Now, before I go too far, speaking of morality... I wanted to share with you an update. I received this over the weekend. Today was supposed to be the beginning of uh, Ammon Bundy's trial in Boise, Idaho. I shared with you last week what he is up against. Um, I I still just just chafe at the institutionalized pettiness and and just malevolence of St. Luke's as well as uh, certain, you know, people within the state of Idaho including the governor, the lieutenant governor, including the, uh, uh, you know, the head of the Idaho State Police, including various, uh, various prosecutors and judges. These people are not happy with Ammon Bundy. But as I shared last week, he was standing up for the rights of everybody when he defied the COVID lockdowns, when he had the Easter church service that uh, these officials were, were talking about, how can we affect a mass arrest on everybody? He wasn't doing that to grandstand and bring attention to himself. He was doing it to to show you cannot take people's right to gather and worship away from them. And he's coming at this from a moral standpoint. Now, how do I know that? Okay, I know the guy personally. 
I have stood with him. I prayed with him enough to know that this is not a person who is shooting from the hip. I get it. There, you know, his, his tactics sometimes make people upset. Sometimes they feel like, well, this is just, uh, this is just making people angry. But I, I maintain, whether you agree with him or not, I don't think anybody can make the, the case that uh, we are at a point right now where a person who politely and gently asks, you know, the people who are putting a boot on their neck to please don't press down so hard is going to get any results. You have to be willing to offend the people who are trying to oppress you or subjugate you. There is no other way. And the way you offend them is you defy them or you just simply encourage people, ignore them. Now, to some people, that seems lawless. And, of course, the press in Idaho and, and those, uh, those people in power who, uh, who disapprove of someone challenging their authority, you know, they are really upset about this. And, and it's no secret. They're, they're doing everything they can right now to legally destroy Ammon and his family. They have hired a, uh, the CEO of uh, St. Luke's, Chris Roth, has authorized Holland and Hart Law Firm to just bury him Barry Ammon, in in legal filings, motions, and injunctions. He would need three full-time attorneys just to answer all the mountains of paperwork that are coming at him every single week. And there was going to be a gathering. He had actually called for people, please come and show up at the courthouse. You know, if you can, come into the courtroom, show support for him. But he he sent out an update over the weekend and said that he had made a peace offering. Let's see if they will take it. And what the, what this means, in a nutshell, is that he has, has offered to pay the fine for trespassing and some kind of a, a settlement with, with St. Luke's. Now, I know some people are like, what, he sold out? But uh, you've, you've got to, you got to understand, that in the criminal case, they're claiming that, uh, that, that his trespassing harmed them in the civil case that's against uh, his friend Diego Rodriguez and and uh, basically low and also against Ammon for for speaking out against uh, the St. Luke's employees the CPS staff Meridian police who were taking a baby away from his parents um, unjustifiably so <clears throat> he has has made a peace offering he says he says, agreeing to a fine and a suspended sentence of 90 days in jail. I have never done this before. He says, it's certainly not my style. I've prayed and pondered about this move for many days. I did not perjure myself and keep this agreement within the moral boundaries that all of us must live by as children of God. This is not an act of fear or desperation. But he says, this agreement will become official on Monday, so I won't be having a trial anymore. And that means there is no need for people to come to the courthouse to support me in trial any longer. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I, the, the test to me is, will they still go after him anyway? Just to teach him a lesson, just to, you know, to rub his nose in it. I hope not. But I don't think anybody could, could make the case, well, you know, he's bucking for a fight and he wants to get this done. You know, the, Ammon's critics are many, and, and some of them are just downright demonic in the way that, uh, that they like to go after him. But... All I'm asking you to consider, the reason I'm sharing this with you, first of all, is an update, just so people know. Um, you know, he has apparently reached some kind of a settlement. But I also want to, to just introduce the idea that what he has done, 
from Bundy Ranch to the Malheur Wildlife Refuge to standing up for Sarah Walton Brady when she was arrested to standing up for baby Cyrus's family and baby Cyrus when he was kidnapped medically by the police and by officials at St. Luke's in Boise. This is all stemmed from having a clear understanding of right and wrong. And the disconnect that a lot of people just can't seem to get their minds around. And I I get it. You know, we're trained as kids. Well, government's here to help us. It's here to do what we can't do. And, And there are good people who serve in government positions. There are. They're very, very rare. Unfortunately, these days, there's a lot of self-serving politicians and, and uh, you know, opportunists and power seekers. But once in a while, you find good people. But the system itself really is a very amoral system. And one of the ways you can determine that it's an amoral system is just look at what it takes to get elected to higher offices. The higher the office, the more this is true. If you want to be elected to a higher office, you have to be willing to say whatever you need to say. That means lie in order to get people to vote for you. You need to be willing to do whatever you need to do. In other words, to prostitute yourself in order to keep the money coming in that will help secure your reelection bid and keep you in power. That's amoral. There's no other way to put it. And there are times where people who are more deeply interested in pursuit of power and and privilege and whatever it is that they're getting from that position of of elected authority, they just, they, they will run roughshod over the people they're supposed to be serving. And I'm sorry for the civics lesson here, but government was not created to tell us what to do. It's created to keep us free, to make sure that justice prevails. And when Ammon has spoken up, or as you may call it, acting out, you know, when he's, when he's acted out, it has always 100% of the time been in defense of keeping government within its proper limits and keeping the rights of people protected. So I'm happy to hear that there was, uh, there was a development over the, the weekend. I, I'm, I'm happy that he was able to make some kind of a settlement. I really hope it sticks. I hope that it's, it's something that uh, keeps him you know, off their radar screen for a while and at least gets them off his back for a short time. When we come back, we're going to talk about morality and the individual responsibility that we once had that somehow has shifted. Got a couple of different takes that I think you're going to appreciate. I hope you'll appreciate because these are things that are well within your sphere of influence and my sphere of influence. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. You know, as a member of Generation X, I've seen a thing or two in my day. All right, I'm not, I'm not old enough to be a boomer, but, uh, but darn close. And one of the biggest generational shifts in my lifetime is the shift from personal to positional morality. Now, I don't know that I had even really heard the phrase positional morality until I read this article from Robin Kerner, This was published on the Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org. And it says, with the exception of what remains of the silent generation born before 1946, Generation X is the smallest of the generations alive today. 
There are fewer of us than there are boomers, millennials, or Generation Z. And Robin says, I sometimes wonder to what extent my being one of the smallest generational minority contributes to my overwhelmingly or my increasingly feeling like a stranger in my own land. Now, he says, some of the reasons for my sense of cultural alienation are perhaps unsurprising. I don't live on social media. I prefer simplicity in technology and life in three dimensions to curated representations of it in two. I do not take photographs of myself or post details of my personal lives, my personal life rather, to those who have not expressly asked for them. I'm completely comfortable in my masculinity. I laugh at off-color jokes without a tinge of guilt. I believe that offense is always taken and never given, so I don't get offended. I grasp opportunities to engage with ideas that make me uncomfortable because I find they provide the best opportunities for growth. I pity those who avoid such discomfort. By the way, there's a lot of wisdom in what he just said there. I personally enjoy knockdown arguments about issues I care about, and I don't take them personally. I would give trophies only for winning. I resent being politically messaged when I'm going about my daily business, such as buying groceries or getting on a bus. I hold that the only diversity that really matters is that of perspective, and I'm sorry that the prevailing discourse on diversity is unironically so undiverse and unimaginative. I would never demand that anyone talk about me using words other than the ones they choose, because I believe that freedom of thought, even the freedom to call me an idiot of whatever gender, is more important than people getting people to pretend to respect me. And I experience most of the above as part of being an emotionally mature adult. Now, he says, being human, of course, I would be happier if so many cultural trends of today were not opposed to my dispositions and preferences. The fact that they are, while causing me deep concern, has not yet caused me to give up hope or stop working to promote my values in society at large. Even so, I'm now less of an optimist than I ever have been on account of a phenomenon that is more general and fundamental than any political or cultural trend or issue of our time. It seems to me that a condition that is both necessary and ultimately sufficient for the destruction of all that is good in the Western way of life and all that guarantees peaceful coexistence with others may have already been met. It is the condition of me, the condition, it is a condition rather, the meeting of which is the sine qua non, or the, the reason, of all the significantly destructive cultural and political trends of our time. It is a condition, the meeting of which has the potential to throw into reverse moral and intellectual progress. And it is a condition immune to institutional resistance or reversal because it remakes institutions manifest as it is in the minds of the individuals who populate them. It is a moral condition, concerning not any particular moral claim, question, or behavior, but the very meaning and experience of morality at all. Namely, it is the apparent fading away of the experience and idea of morality as personal, constraining one's own views, speech, and actions, and its replacement with an experience and idea of morality as positional, concerned with constraining the views, speech, and actions of others. Ooh, see the difference? He says this weakening of personal morality manifests repeatedly as moral cowardice in the face of policies and practices that cause discomfort of conscience whenever resistance to them comes at a personal cost. 
Increasingly comfortable Westerners of the English-speaking world seem willing and able to rationalize away the moral compromises they make when they comply with, and thus lend the weight of their own moral agency to, social and cultural norms, expectations, and mandates that offend the values that they otherwise like to believe they hold. Such moral cowardice, when sufficiently ubiquitous, might alone suffice to destroy a society, but perhaps it does not necessitate such destruction as much as allow it. The destruction of a way of life is guaranteed only when the positional morality of the minority takes hold of the culture as the morally, co the morally cowardly majority chooses convenience over conscience and complies. Now, Robin Kerner says, personal morality influences and constrains one's political views because it respects moral agency and therefore the moral value of others. Positional morality, in contrast, disrespects or even denies the agency of others because it locates morality only in compliance with its positions. This is exactly, he is describing perfectly why I am absolutely opposed to the whole woke movement. He says those positional moral moralizers who would tell the rest of us what to do succeed inasmuch as the rest of us comply with their demands against our better moral judgment. We do so when our personal morality is too weak to pay the price of non-compliance. Now, he says, I'm talking about people who vote for leaders who they know have behaved in ways they regard as immoral and that they would discipline their own children for displaying. I'm talking about people who criticize non-members of a group with which they identify for actions or views they dislike and yet make no judgment of members of their group for exhibiting the same actions or views. He says, I'm talking about people who believe in free speech and yet go along with requirements to declare what words others should use to refer to them. I'm talking about parents who are concerned about the sexualization of, their ch of children and yet do not intervene when they see exactly what is going on at their schools. I'm talking about educators who are concerned with expanding minds and yet stand by when their institutions or the people within them actively present, prevent rather, those who wish to hear an unorthodox argument from doing so. I'm talking about people who stand by as the very meanings of the words they have used for a lifetime are changed by legislation for political purposes, and others are punished or persecuted for using them with their original and common meanings. I'm talking about people who won't admit in public that something they've laughed at in private can acceptably be said for that very reason. I'm talking about people who happily accept back as privileges for themselves what they used to regard as rights for everyone. I'm talking about people who believe in bodily autonomy, but accept a compelled medical intervention to keep their job. Whereas personal morality constrains how one treats others, positional morality allows people to treat others as badly as they choose, as long as the views those people expound are deemed unacceptable. Whereas personal morality demands an individual's adherence to conscience and respect for the same in others, positional morality demands and even coerces violations of conscience by others if the outputs of their consciences are deemed unacceptable. Since both the operation of and the adherence to conscience requires a commitment to truth, positional morality demands lies from people whose commitment to truth leads them to such unacceptable views. Now, he says, look, morality can be complicated, difficult, and nuanced as it applies to all the intricacies and variations of the experiences of myriad complex humans. 
the morally serious often prefer not to take a firm position on an issue that has many sides, especially when such a position would have further implications that yet raise yet more questions of principle or difficulties of implementation. In contrast, positional morality, which is a kind of hollowed-out pseudo-morality, sets no store by the deeply personal process of moral reasoning. It judges people based only on their adoption of or failure to adopt its preferred positions. An interesting question arises regarding how we have arrived here. What factors have for so many individuals changed the very experience and idea of morality to something that constrains and judges not themselves, but others? Robin Kerner says, the question is too big to answer. There are too many variables and factors. In fact, he says, known and unknown that have to be identified before any remotely satisfactory answer can be given. But a couple of very general points suggest themselves. I got to take a real quick break here, but we'll come back and talk about those two points that uh, Robin Curter has identified. I don't know if this is, is, has got light bulbs popping on in your mind, but it sure explains a lot about political correctness and the whole wokeness movement, doesn't it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Hey, quick shout out here to my sponsors, including Borelli.com, Lifesavingfood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Appreciate each of them for helping to make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. All right, I'm sharing this article from Robin Kerner. This was published on the Brownstone Institute website, brownstone.org. Marvelous source of uh, information for wrong thinkers. And uh, this one is about the shift from personal to positional morality. Personal morality being you and I constraining our own thoughts, our own words, our own actions versus positional morality in which uh, we're concerned with constraining other people's words, thoughts, and actions. You can probably see the application of this, you know, really, really easily. So he asks, you know, is, is there any way that we can describe how we arrived here? But he says, I have a couple of general points that, uh, that could help explain how we got here. First, the positional moralizers began taking over public education systems two generations ago. And now, assuming a strong correlation between positional morality and commitment to leftist ideologies that explicitly use such morality, morality rather to justify its uh, political goals, they represent a supermajority of all teachers, including, in particular, academician, academicians in the humanities. He's right. Academia has pretty much been taken over by this. Second, the positional moralizers have disproportionate ownership and control of the cultural commanding heights of the media, big tech, and still education. Controlling the most influential platforms, they use them to actively censor perspectives that run counter to their approved positions and to promote those of their friends in government and agencies where the most powerful and unaccountable positional moralizers of all tend to be found. So those very broad phenomena, among others, have likely enabled and now helped to maintain the high price paid to be paid rather for moral courage and the payoff for compliance. And they've done so in part by silencing those who try to cleave to fundamental values that until just a few years ago 
were rightly held to be those on which the peaceful survival of our society and the well-being of all of its members depend. These fundamental values include a commitment to truth, freedom, and equal respect for the agency and conscience of every individual, wherever it may sincerely lead her. But fortunately, we don't uh, need to understand in great detail how we got here to be able to solve the problem. Just as the degradation of our society and its values, whatever the contributing factors, depends on the compliance of enough individuals, its reversal depends obviously on the non-compliance, which is to say, moral courage. Now, moral courage is risky. It has a price, which is why it is called courage. As Aristotle famously declared, courage is the first virtue because it makes all other virtues possible. If that is true, and it is, then the power to reverse attempts to remake Western society into one devoid of all the fundamental moral values that enable all individuals to thrive peacefully lies ultimately and only within each individual. So now the question is, where does such courage come from? Well, it comes from the most personal quality of all, called integrity. Politicians, sociologists, and pundits can well point to social, cultural, and political factors that drive societal change, but each change is mediated by the choices of individuals. And when the better alternative, according to conscience, burdens the person who chooses it, that person's choice reduces to one, to either be complicit or courageous. Oof, I know, it kind of sends a chill up my spine because... That's the choice you and I have to face on a daily basis. And it's not getting easier, is it? Robin Kerner says, Most of the time as we're going about our business, we do not face such choices. But increasingly these days, regular people are encountering situations in which something of moral import is at stake. And they know it in their heart of hearts as much as they might wish they did not. He says, At times, refusing to go along with the norm, expectation, or demand has a personal price and requires courage. Well, going along makes for an easier life, but it's also to declare one's moral agency and arguably, therefore, one's moral value. Is that, is that to be worth less than that price? He says, at those, at those times, there is no middle ground. One can choose an alternative that contributes to the continuation of the immoral state of affairs or an alternative that contributes to its ending. And this is the key. At those times, therefore, to comply is to be complicit. And to be complicit, as so many of us are today, is to become morally responsible for and an agent of the irreversible demoralization in both senses of the West. I've read some fantastic essays. I, every week, I do a ton of reading. This is one of the best ones I've seen in helping to explain the problem that we are up against. But I love the solution that he's proffering as well. Because it comes back to, and I'm, I, I'm always you know, invoking Solzhenitsyn, but dang it, Solzhenitsyn understood this. Live not the lie. Don't participate in something. Don't state a falsehood just because, well, if I say it, at least you know it'll keep people from shouting at me or calling me names or judging me. Don't let the lie continue through your efforts. That doesn't mean you have to go out and be an activist. It just means when the time comes that you are faced with, do I comply or do I go along for the sake of convenience? Sorry, that's doing the same thing. Do I exhibit courage or do I comply? Show the courage. You don't have to be mean about it. You don't have to be, you know, brash and, you know, uh, you, you don't have to be obnoxious. But show the courage. Be willing to take the hits. Be willing to suffer for your beliefs. 
And if you haven't asked yourself, okay, well, what exactly do I believe in that I'm willing to suffer for? What do I believe in strongly enough that I would be willing to go through pain in order to to assert and to live up to that belief? And for people who can't really come up, well, I don't know that there's anything that I would do that for. Then maybe you need to sit down in a quiet place and evaluate your beliefs. See if they're really worth holding on to in the first place. All right. Here's another follow-up here. I'm going to ask a question. Is it true that only immoral people can be free? I know you've heard the phrase, but is it true that only moral people can be free? Paul Rosenberg has a take on this. This one just landed in my email inbox this morning. By the way, I would encourage you, subscribe to his freemansperspective.com website. He sends out these emails once, maybe twice a week. Excellent, excellent essays. And I liked his answer on this. People sometimes talk about freedom requiring morality and even religion. The famous quote along these lines is from John Adams, who wrote that the U.S. Constitution was made for a moral and religious people, going on to say that it's unfit for any other kind. Now, Paul Rosenberg disagrees a bit here. He says that nothing against Mr. Adams, but that passage is a mere assertion. It says nothing about why it might be true that freedom requires a moral populace. Such assertions really ought to be supported, and he says, so far as I've seen, They really haven't been. So Jesus says, today I'm going to address that void. He starts with civilization, costs, and sustainability. And Paul Rosenberg writes, any group of people living together must maintain certain norms. If a civilization or society doesn't suppress theft, murder, rape, and so on, all the decent people will walk away from it, leaving a carnival of the damned behind. So the question is, how to keep bad conduct out of any given civilization? And there are fundamentally two ways to do this. Number one, produce a populace that is safe and beneficial on the inside. Number two, force people who are not internally reformed to behave well anyway. And here's the big difference between those two options. The first is cheap, requiring a minimal level of enforcement. It is a high-trust culture featuring people with civilization inside themselves as its fundamental units. The second is immensely expensive, requiring massive enforcement. These are low-trust cultures. And since enforcement is its basic operation, enforcement will expand into one new area after another until it chokes the society to death. Oh, man. By the way, just to to give yourself an illustration, what would that look like? Go access a federal building. Walk into a federal building, a a courthouse, uh, an IRS center, and, and just see, how much does your government trust you? Guards, metal detectors, warning signs, enforcement at every turn, cameras all over. They don't. Very clearly shows that we are living under that second system. Now, Paul Rosenberg says civilizations of the first type may be overcome by violent neighbors, but aside from that, they are sustainable. Civilizations of the second type are not. They become predator-prey cultures where armies of regulators overfeed until the operation collapses. And by the way, it's not just us. Examples of the first type uh, would be the uh, Minoans, the Phoenicians, Hebrews, the Roman Republic, even Christian Europe. Examples of the second type would be the Roman Empire, the Athenian Empire, and the USSR. By the way, you can see the same thing at the family level. Healthy families treat each member as a distinct and valuable individual. Come what may, we know that we can trust members of our family. And despite legitimate gripes sometimes, 
Most families interact with consideration or at least loyalty and with no external enforcement required. Now we'll come back to this in just a moment and finish up with Paul Rosenberg's thoughts, but if you can govern yourself, you don't need external government. Now the question is, how do we help persuade people that it's better to govern yourself than to wait for someone to govern you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Yes, we are talking morality today. Paul Rosenberg's article, Is It True That Only Moral People Can Be Free? Very interesting how he describes the two different types of cultures. One in which there's lots of outside enforcement, very expensive, very oppressive, by nature it has to be. And the, the other one is a very healthy one in which people govern themselves from within. I like how he points out, you can see this at the family level. Healthy families treat each other with respect. They treat each other as valuable individuals. And whatever gripes may come up, we at least interact with consideration, loyalty, no external enforcement required. And he gives this example. We can trust an older sibling or an aunt or a grandparent to take care of our infant. And because of such things, we can enjoy the benefits of high trust living where norms are held for internal reasons. And again, this embodies people who have civilization inside themselves. Now, the alternative would be the enforcement of everything. That's what happens in unhealthy families like troops of primates. Do what the leader says or be slapped down. And you can also bear in mind that when we can't trust others, we're forced into hypervigilance with its debilitating mental overload. That's not sustainable either. So we can either build civilization into ourselves and our children, or we can attempt to enforce it, which inevitably leads to tyranny. While there can be any number of variations on these themes, the time lags between one and the other, once you accept the model of paid enforcers making everyone obey rules created by a superior class, liberty becomes a non-starter. So, Mr. Adams, John Adams, was correct in his implication that liberty requires morality, And the cost of civilization is precisely why. Now, he says, okay, but religion, okay. Paul Rosenberg says, nothing we've said above establishes the necessity of religion. And religion, he says, is not a fundamental necessity. We've established that having civilization inside of us is necessary, but that's all. Now, that said, he says, religion is a far more potent force in human affairs than enforcement. To make that clear, please consider this. People don't commit suicide over breaking petty laws or stiffing the IRS. But they do commit suicide over their sins. Ooh. Enforcements then threaten and affect the outer man. Religion affects the inner man, which is a far more powerful thing. Now, none of this is to say religion is a pure and pristine thing, which is something religious people understand all too well. But it is a powerful thing. It organizes and improves human interiors in ways that do what we say or will hurt you never has and never will. And it's of some interest that the religions of the West, Judaism and Christianity, differentiate themselves from the enforcement model quite overtly. This is often muddied in the present day as religious leaders suck up to power, but as these religions formed, it was quite otherwise. Consider that Judaism was very clear that justice stood above any ruler any ruler, and that God spoke to the humble, not to the mighty. 
Compare that to the assumptions of the enforcement model. And Christianity in its early days was fully committed to internal improvement and opposed to the enforcement of norms. Not only does St. Paul rage against people going to law with one another, but in another place he notes that the law was not made for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. In other words, as he labors long to explain, those with goodness inside themselves are free from the law. They're apart from the enforcement model. Now, Paul Rosenberg says more could be said here, but I'm straying from the primary point, which is this. When it comes to creating and sustaining a moral civilization, no one has found a better way than religion. Now, he says, bear in mind, I'm not authorizing any specific religion or even religion per se. I'm just saying that to keep millions of people focused on morality over generations and centuries, the only viable method we see in the historical record is religion. Now, could something better be found? Perhaps so, but we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it in action. A religious populace is a group of people who focus on the most fundamental issues directly and usually at least once per week. On top of that, the religions of the West, Judaism and Christianity are inherently centered around the emulation of and approach to a purely good deity. So whatever quibbles we have with these religions, doctrine, implementation or whatever, the fact that they focus millions of people on virtues and with great regularity cannot be seriously challenged. Note also that enforcement-based civilizations inevitably oppose religious, religions rather centered on internal improvement, or else they swallow them and turn them to their own ends. You know why they do that, right? It's because they can't handle another competing moral authority, a moral authority that is above the state. That's why the most totalitarian societies always seek to eradicate religion, or at least eradicate the idea that you are accountable to God. Kind of makes sense. So, Paul Rosenberg says, In fairness, it must be said that the people who go about proclaiming the need of religion very often do it for self-serving reasons. However, that's just a human problem. Most of the people who proclaim the sanctity of enforcement do it for equally bad or even worse reasons. Still, we're left with two facts. One, without pervasive morality, freedom cannot be built or sustained. There can be a period of riding the coattails of previous generations. Number two, religion, while not essentially necessary, is the only long-term solution to the cost of civilization problem that we find in the historical record. So again, Mr. Adams was correct even if he didn't explain it. Consistent moral focus is what creates a moral populace. There will be more moral or mostly moral people, of course, not purely moral, but that's enough to make freedom a practical arrangement. What an amazing essay. Now, I don't know if you, you know, I mean, you, you can agree or you can disagree. I think, uh, I think we are standing at a point, though, where this is where personal morality is more important than ever. And the thing I just wanted, if you take nothing away from today's show, but this, it will not happen from the top down. You're not going to find the right political leader to inspire people to, to become more moral. The only time or place that that's going to happen is when the King of Kings personally returns and governs on this earth. Which I believe is going to happen. But until that time, it's, it's on us as individuals to suss out what is right, what is wrong, and to live up to our beliefs as perfectly as we can, keeping in mind that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to stumble and fall. But as long as we're trying 
it is making a difference. A couple other articles that I, I would like to recommend for you. These will be included in today's uh, show notes. Um, Anthony Esselin has a marvelous article on uh, the massive effort at moral rebuilding that our society needs right now. And if you've ever tried to persuade your fellow countrymen that right and wrong still exist, this is what's being played out in so many school board meetings right now. You know, the idea is, well, you know, all these teachers are trying to do is just teach kids. If, if the, t- the kids see these teachers respecting other students, why parents think that's a challenge to their religion. No, th- these teachers who are showing kids, you know, pornographic material and instructing them on how to, you know, safely conduct anal and oral sex and all kinds of, you know, uh, deviant things that are way beyond what kids should be having to deal with. There's right and there's wrong. And that is very clearly on the side of wrong. But guess what? You know, in a, in a world where morality is being inverted, no, the only thing wrong is to challenge that because that might offend some kids who are curious and who want to experiment and teachers who want to mold them. And All I'm saying is parents who stand up and say, this is not right for my kid, you're on the right side. You're being, you know, ballyhooed and you're being uh, portrayed as unreasonable or hateful or something like dangerous, possibly violent but you're still on the right side. Those are just, uh, you know, manipulation techniques that uh, activists and their, their cohorts in the press are trying to use to, to demonize you. Don't pay attention to it. Although I, I say this with the deepest sincerity, parents, you're probably approaching a point, if you're very serious about protecting your kids from being, you know, deliberately instructed to embrace evil as good and to reject good as evil. You probably are facing the choice of having to pull your kids out of the government-run school system. Not an easy choice. And yes, I know, there are good people who work within that system. But the system itself seems to be very welcoming to uh, the new morality, the new absolute, which is that there are no absolutes. I also have articles here about how free speech matters more than we might think. Julian Adorni and Mark Johnson have a great article from the Foundation for Economic Education on how opponents of free speech are gaining ground and how we need to fight back. Got a great article here from Robert E. Wright. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, Powerful insight into how the power to regulate is the power to control. And also a great article here from intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Mark Johnson. And uh, find the time to read this one. Nothing will stop your personal success in its tracks like a victim mindset. So Mark Johnson teaches you how to cultivate an internal locus of control that puts you in charge of your life. And by the way, it's very simple. It's like three steps, but it can make a huge difference. Thanks again for joining me in this session of Wrong Think. Please consider subscribing to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.